Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Five weeks of campaigning, five weeks Canada's parliament was put on pause, costing more than $600 million. And the result, more or less the same situation as where we started. It was irresponsible, didn't need it to be called. Everybody's going to be paying for this for a long time. Lots of people have paid for it pretty hard already. It was a total waste of money, meaning that we're in the same position as we were yesterday. This status quo election has kept a liberal minority government and a strong conservative opposition. So what, if anything, changes? The parties will need to work together for the foreseeable future. They're going to need to compromise. The coffers of the different political parties is a little bit drier than it was prior to August 15th, of course. And so I think at the very least, this election will create a little bit more stability in Parliament. Well, there you have it. Uh, We're talking about the mess that we called an election. Uh, We called that a Canadian election. It was a real mess for a lot of people. You're listening to Yona and you're on the road to recovery. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm in the studio tonight with Sophia and Corey and... um, I believe her name is Anne-Marie. I could be lying. I'll find out if I made a mistake. But uh, whoever it is, welcome. You know, this whole election thing, what a mess. Can you think of what we could have done with $612 million? Like, seriously. We're in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of an opioid, you know, pandemic. We're in the middle of a pandemic with children uh, and teenagers and adults as it relates to their unstable mental health and suicide rates and all that kind of stuff. We're a mess, right? We're going to fix it. We're going to clean it up. We're going to come out the other side, right? Doing shows like this and other things that we can do together as a group and individually. We're going to come out the other side. But was this really a valid event? So here's the question. You can call in and we're waiting to take your call. Was this a waste of time and money? Do you think it was a waste of time and money? I want to hear from you. And the other question is, do you actually trust any of these people that were running for, for office? Like, I st- you know, I'm not a politician. I don't do a political show. I try to stay away from political discussions, stay away from discussions around religion and things like. I just stay away from things that are too controversial and, you know, I can't come out, you know, the other side winning even if I win. So I try to avoid these conversations, right? <clears throat> I, I respect them. I respect people that understand politics and how it all works. I can't find anyone who's a rational thinker, someone who's just not, you know, kind of, wants to hear themselves think and talk, or wants to hear themselves talk, um, you know, other than those kind of people, I can't find anyone that I respect with a political opinion to explain to me what we just went through. And then to look at the individuals that were running for office thinking to myself, oh, my God, if I had daughters, I would never let them date any of these guys, right? And, and you know, if I had a son, I'd never let him date any of the, any of the, the females that were running for, politi- for, for political office. Like, you know, they're just not nice people. They talk out of one side of their mouth and they really mean the other. And what's really sad is during the midst of a de- very, very difficult time, very difficult time, this election gets put forth. I don't know about you, but it created a lot of anxiety for me, a lot of distress. I was having a really difficult time understanding what the hell we're doing and why we're doing it. Because it doesn't make any sense to me. And then you look at the price tag and look at what we got going on around us that we need to fix. $612 million would make a real dent in fixing a lot of things, I think. Sounds like a lot of money to me. I don't know. I want to hear from you. 416-870-6400. Could we have done a better job with the $600 million? Could we have done something else with it more, more beneficial to us as a society, more beneficial to us as a group of individuals and people that are trying to fight back from a horrible time in our lives. But anyway, what happened was, obviously, Trudeau won an election. 
but he he was denied the parliamentary majority that he was you know he called the election to win. So it was a it was like a like it was nothing. <laughs> it was nothing. It was neutral. The liberals didn't gain anything. We didn't gain anything. We didn't lose anything except six hundred million ducks. Six hundred million dollars. I should say six twelve because the twelve million sounds like I'm running right. You know, I'm rounding it off like it's small change. How many lives we could change for twelve million dollars? How many youth? we could take care of that are in, in a difficult time with mental health and guns and gangs, violence, and those that are living in neighborhoods that are affected by these neighborhoods, by, by these types of violence, violent acts, including every neighborhood we live in is being affected. So it's not just those places. It's every place. $12 million would do a lot. I was going to round it off and say $600 million for the election, but the $12 million has value. So the liberals are, 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 have been basically elected 158 of the 338 districts, right? So they needed a majority of 170 seats, and they didn't get it. It was, it was just, it made no sense. And then if you were watching any of the news coverage, certainly here in Toronto, you know, watching my partners at, at Global, watching their, their exceptional news coverage of the, of, the, of the election and the election results, and, you know, I, I saw hundreds and hundreds of people Five minutes before the, the, the centers, the, the election centers were supposed to be closed, lined up around buildings. And you know what? A lot of those people, when you looked in the crowd, a lot of those people, if you look at them, for, for many of them, and they were interviewed on air, <clears throat> many of them, it was the first time they could vote. They were new to the country. They just became citizens, or maybe they just re reached an age where they, could, where they were able to vote. It was a big deal for them. Like it was a, a coming out party, so to speak. And it was a mess. Anyway, let's hear what Jeet has to say. He's from Innisfil. Good afternoon or good evening, Jeet. Thank you for calling. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time. So it, what, a, what, a, what a waste of time and money, right, brother? Sir, what am I allowed to say on this radio program? Well, you're allowed to say anything you want as long as your mother would, wouldn't smack you in your face if you used those words. Well, my mother was old school, right? You know how <laughs> we do it back in days. Okay, so use the kind of language she would like. How's that? Okay. Sir, first of all, I like I really want to know. I really this is my question to you actually. I hear this radio a lot, especially in the morning when I go to work. All these radio broadcasters all they talk about is what the government side is. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist here, okay? I just think a little bit more than an average person, okay, sir? So, do they really so sir, my question is, do they really believe what they're saying? Okay, so I can't speak. I, I, I appreciate the question, and thank you so much for calling, Jeet. Uh, we've got a minute left, so I'll, I'll see if I can answer this before the time is up. And, uh, again, I really appreciate you being a, a listener and a caller. Um, I can't speak for all the other broadcasters that are out there, but I'm a therapist with a microphone. I don't really have a political opinion. Uh, I don't believe anybody. <laughs> you know, I know what I can control. I know what I don't control. Uh, I don't take uh, anyone who's in government for a living at their word because it's really not their job. They kind of go with their flow. So, you know, I can't speak for everyone else. I believe that my colleagues that do the shows and, and, and handle the news and, and the political stuff um, have an opinion that's honest and true. But that's not our job. Our job is to report what we, what we hear and what we know and what we've learned to all of you so that you have the opportunity to make a decision. It's not what we think. It's what you think. It doesn't matter what we think. It matters what you think. I'm a little different, right? Can I get a little bit more room because we're you know, doing some help stuff here? But um, my job is to try to make your lives better. It has nothing to do with what my opinion is. We have a guest joining us. And the question is, you have a picky eater at home? 
Well, we got that covered. We got some ex- we got an expert that's going to help us talk about how you manage the picky eater because if you don't manage food properly, it can turn out to be a real disaster. Maybe even a gateway drug. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. Hey, hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. You've got Yona here in the studio on Road to Recovery. And if you want to play with us tonight, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-TALK. Glad to hear from you. You can text me anytime, 647-488-0086. You know, the thing around food, I don't know how you grew up. I grew up in a house where, you know, basically my mother would say, you should eat that because you'll like it or you should taste it because it's good. Um, my children have been raised and my grandchildren raised and certainly in my house when they're here are, are raised by, um, by my beautiful bride and, uh, everyone's mother and grandmother. We, uh, they're raised such that you can try something. If you don't like it, you don't have to eat it, but you gotta at least try it. Food is a big deal. I see a lot of patients with food related issues that turn out to, uh, lend, lead their way some often to other forms of substance issues and concerns and around uh, mental health and around uh, confidence and so on. We have an expert on with us tonight. Her name is Ola uh, Pabjaz, and she is a registered dietitian. Thank you, Ola, for joining us. I appreciate you uh, staying up. And, well, it's not so late, right? It's it's only after 9, so glad you could come. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Yona. Nice to talk to you. A pleasure. So let's get to it. Um, you know, we're, the, the, the concept is, and I'm, you know, I'm sure in your job as a dietitian, you deal with it all the time. You know, parents want their kids to eat everything. Kids certainly don't like certain things they don't like. And there becomes a tug of war at dinner. And then at the end of the day, the kid eats nothing and the parents run off angry and upset. And it's a disaster for everybody. And then no one wants to come to the dinner table. So, I mean, what really makes, uh, how do you really define the difference between a choosy eater, I suppose, and a picky eater? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, around like ages one to three, I feel like it's, it's, it's common to develop those sort of, you know, cautious tendencies um, with kids. And of course, they can last longer. Um, but yeah, the difference between just, you know, picky eating where, you know, it's, it's kind of like a phase, so to speak, um, and something more serious, which, you know, um, is there's not like an official name for it, but it's more of like an extreme food aversion, which right. is when, you know, kids only eat like a small variety of foods, um, is that, uh, you know, the extreme food aversion can actually come with serious nutritional risks and some kids even end up in the hospital. So not to scare anyone, but it is something just to um, be aware of. And I think, and, and like eating per se, or, or sort of quote unquote, forcing your kids to eat or restricting what they eat often leads to bad stuff. Do you see that in your practice as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, I heard what you were saying about how you grew up and it's, it's similar to how a lot of us grew up. Right. Um, and you know, I, I also wasn't allowed to leave the table if I didn't finish everything on my plate. So, exactly. um, so today I feel like there's just a lot more research, um, about, um, just fostering healthier relationships with food in our children. Um, someone I wanted to bring up was Ellen Satter. She's a uh, registered dietitian and psychotherapist, and she's um, an internationally recognized expert on eating and feeding. Um, and she came up with something called the division of responsibility. And for those that don't know about it, it's essentially balancing parental leadership with child autonomy. So you're responsible as a parent for providing you're responsible for what's available or what's offered to the child 
whereas the child is responsible for when, where, how much, and whether they eat and how fast they eat. So it's a oh, lot different it. from how we grew up. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I, my mother's 95. I'm wondering if it's too late for her to read it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's um, that's amazing. What's the name of the book again? Um, well, the the woman is Ellen Saturn. She has a research institute, um, and okay. she, if you Google her name, you'll find it. It's the first one that pick, uh, pops up. Um, but let me, uh, bring up her name here, uh, just so I can, she's got a, uh, a great book. Um, she's actually kind of got a few of them, but yeah. Um, what's, what was the name of that book in particular? Um, so it is, uh, there's secrets of feeding a healthy family and there's also a child of mine. That one's really famous. Cool. Very good. So let's move on then. I just it's nice to know that people can have find a resource because eating is you know eating the around the dinner table. Uh, it's always a, a, a point of uh, of discussion or aggravation or argument or you know steaming you know storming away from the table if something doesn't turn out right or you know telling your kid if they eat that they can get their treats with all the sugar in it. I, I and I know we're not doing it well because I see a lot of those kids now that they're mid aged adults and even as teenagers and it's part of the work we do when we're dealing with you know. Know, substance abuse issues and mental health issues. So um, how do you, here's a question that everyone seems to ask. How do I get my kid to try new things? Like how do you, you know, my wife kind of, you know, makes it fun for my grandkids. My older kids, they just try it just to try it. But um, they're adults. They, they can make their own decisions. But even our young guys, that our grandchildren who are, you know, young, um, you know, my, my wife works with them in a way that, you know, makes it fun to engage in trying something new and compares it to other things they've eaten. But I mean, in, in, in a real way, how do you get your kid to try something new? Those are really great strategies. I mean, I feel like at the dinner table, you know, focus on the mealtime experience rather than the particular details of what kids are eating. So use yeah. it as an opportunity to learn, interact with them. Um, they're, they're, they're really learning their environment. So let them experience their food and, and, you know, join them when they're eating and make it, make it a positive experience. Um, but some more practical information would be a lot of people are surprised to know that it can take up to 10 exposures to a food to develop an interest in trying it. And then it takes up to 10 tries of that food to even develop a liking for it. So it's just a normal process of adapting to new food. So just be patient. Don't give up. Keep offering. Eventually, someone will reach out and try it. You have kids? I do not have kids. Okay, you have like kids in your life, like uh, friends, kids, or you know, relatives. Yeah, kids. I, mean, I have, have you I have experienced. You've experienced actual dinner time with little children. Oh, definitely. It can be really stressful and frustrating. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, how do you make that more fun? How do you, how do you like, you know, how do you turn dinner time and, you know, rather, you know, how do you turn dinner time into, into fun time? You know, like, um, one of the things that we do, like we we're, we're, we're Jewish and our faith is Jewish. And, uh, we, we, uh, during Passover, we're close to Easter time. We have these big meals. They're called seders and it's basically around telling stories to kids. So how do you keep the kids at this table for two, three hours? The trick is give them little toys and little treats and things that jump up and down and, you know, little, you know, squishy toys and so on but really it, that's set up for something just to keep them quiet but in real terms <laughs> you can't really turn dinner time into like a time at the park can you 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to engage them for that long. You can't expect them to sit at the dinner table like adults do uh, for that long. Um, but, you know, you brought up some good things, getting them involved in preparation, um, shopping. Oh, like, that's a good one. Let's, that's a good let's one. go grocery shopping and you pick out, you know, this yeah. cool looking vegetable. We can make it together. That can get them engaged. Amazing. Amazing. Um, you know, it seems to be things like vegetables and the healthy stuff that kids seem to turn away from before they're even um, before they're even actually, you know, tasting them. Is there something around the parents, you know, the way parents say, you know, you should eat your vegetables because they're really good for you? Is there something around the really good for you that turns them off and, and, and changes their palate to say, yuck, I don't want any of that if it's good for me? Yeah, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, that's just human nature, right? But um, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, kids have sensory issues. They're really sensitive, not so much sensory issues, but they're just sensitive to those new textures. And, um, you know, some kids prefer cooked vegetables, others like them raw. So it really just boils down to them experiencing these new sensations. Um, but I, I like to remind parents, you know, avoid any sort of pressure and also, you know, try to avoid negative and positive feedback. Just keep it neutral. Try to take the focus off of food and just, you know, make it more of an experience and a time for connection with the family rather than, you know, you should eat that or good job, you ate that. Just try and steer away from that because it just can get a little bit too too much pressure. Here's here's one for you that I thought you might find interesting. What if you have a let, okay, let, we'll just we'll just take the standard family, you know, the normal, you know, beaver cleaver family unit, mother, father, a couple of kids, right? What what if what if dad, you know, mom's trying to get the kids to, uh, I know I'm breaking all kinds of things here by doing it like this, but it is what it is. It's an easy example. So mom's taking care of the family, providing the food, and dad decides, you know, dad, there's things that dad doesn't like. How do you get your kids to eat stuff if one of the parents has an issue? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge thing is we, we learn – by observing as kids and you know you got to set a good example and it's not always easy but um you know it can be a family activity to try and find meals that everyone can enjoy but also um are good for us so um yeah you do need to lead by example so got to be some flexibility there too amazing uh before we get uh stuck for time here how do people get a hold of you if they're looking to uh, talk to a dietitian yeah, um, so I, um, I'm i on JM Nutrition, um, and there's lots of different professionals there, um, a lot of dietitians, but I am there, and you can find me there. It's uh, jmnutrition.com. Um, uh, excellent. Uh, and you'll come back some other time when we're talking about food-related stuff. We'd love to have you, an excellent guest, by the way. I would love to. Thanks so much. Uh, okay, one really, one real quick. Uh, we got about a minute left before we have to go to break. Um, real quick question: How do you know if your kid's not getting enough nutrients? Like parents are concerned about whether their kids are eating enough or not eating enough. How do you really know, other than your annual uh, checkup? Yeah, so um, some things to pay attention to would be, you know, are they losing weight? Are they always tired? Um, are they avoiding entire food groups? Those are kind of like little red flags. The other thing is um, you could check out the SOS Approach to Feeding. It's a seven-question questionnaire online uh, by Dr. K.A. Tume, um, and that kind of helps you differentiate between is it just picky eating or is this problem feeding? 
Well, I got to tell you, I really appreciate you joining us tonight. Uh, it's fun talking to you. I hope we get to do more of it about more stuff related to food and what's happening with our kids around what we eat. Because I think what we eat has, a, I don't think, I know what we have, what we eat has a lot to do with what goes on inside in terms of mental health, not just physical health. So we should be working together at several level. At least we can do it on the air, if nothing else. Thank you, Olaf, just for joining us tonight. to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And thank you for joining us. Welcome back. This is Yona. You are on the road to recovery. You want to play with us tonight? 416-870-6400 is how you do it by phone. Or you can text me at 647-488-0086. It's uh, about 930. And if uh, you don't know where your children are, your loved ones, your, you know, your elders, your dog, or whoever, your pets, you should probably check in on them and see what's going on. If you can't find them, you should call us at 416-870-6400 will help you if we can, or 911, actually, if you really think that they're in danger. You know, speaking of being in danger, university students are, um, universities themselves are bolstering for mental health, uh, bolstering their mental health resources uh, for the fall. But a lot of students say that there's barriers to access, um, the barriers to access persist. They still, it's still difficult to actually get stuff. Uh, on campus. Students are now gearing up for a return to campus on uh, the week of uh, September 9th. It's passed, of course, <clears throat> for the time uh, since the pandemic emerged. It's the first time in, you know, what, a year, 14 months. Uh, universities are preparing to meet the physical and mental needs of students on campus after a year being away. Uh, but, the, you know, there's a lot of worry around the Delta variant and the mounting uh, pandemic-related stress and mental health issues. Um, according to an expert here, I've seen a lot of students taking leaves and dropping out of school because they're unable to cope with the demands of school when their mental health has already been so gravely impacted by the pandemic. This is uh, according to Michelle Foster. She's a clinical psychologist uh, and the co-director of the Toronto Psychology and Wellness Group a Clinic. We have our own in-house expert that we're going to call on right now. We're going to tap on the shoulder of my good friend and colleague, Sophia. And um, Sophia is the closest thing to someone in school that I know, the closest person to someone in school that I know that would be comfortable talking to us on air. So, Sophia, thank you for joining us on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. Um, School, university, uh, being a girl or woman in school, um, all of the stresses related to life in school now with pandemic and so on. Um, in your days, I, I assume, are you still in, you're not still in school. You've graduated, right? No, I am still in school. I am just finishing my fourth year of my bachelor's degree, and I'm going through the very stressful process of applying to grad school. So. Oh, my goodness. So you are right in the mix, so to speak. Okay, take it back. She's our person on the ground. I'm the eyes on the inside and I've been eyes reporting I've been reporting in I study journalism I've been reporting for campus media for the past 4 years and a lot of that has had to do with mental health on campus and I can tell you yeah it's it is its own mini epidemic there are so many barriers in place in order to access mental health services on campuses and what are they doing about it? Like, you know, are, are schools becoming flexible? I mean, what was it like before the pandemic? Was it, you know, relatively simple? And oh, by the way, before we answer the question, how come I'm not on that news feed so that I can use some of your material and not have to rely on others? You probably write great stuff. So make sure I get on that news feed, just as an aside. But, um, you know, if you're, you know, people that have had to actually, you know, kind of navigate the mental health care system 
on campus? Have you experienced it with any of your friends or people you know? I do. Um, I, I have spoken to many students who have had to go through that process. And I will say one of the biggest barriers to access that I have come across in my work in this field would be the wait times in order to access services. So you're looking at students waiting months um, in order to make it to the top of the wait list, only to be given an appointment at a time they can't make it, and to have to restart that waiting process all over again. And of course, you know, mental health services, you could go off campus, but that's not an option for everybody. Not everyone's able to afford that. Not everyone has accessible insurance, that kind of thing. So you're really putting people in a difficult position with just the wait times. And it's a question of, you know, are there enough resources on campus to meet the demand? Or is it just underestimating how many students are dealing with mental health issues? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both things, right? And, and you know, I'll tell you that when you're when someone is looking for help, you know, someone will say to me, they'll leave a message through one of my systems or one of the businesses that we have access to me through. And, you know, people will, you know, leave a message and a couple, two, three, four hours later, they'll, I'll call them back and they'll go, oh my God, I can't believe you're actually calling. Like, it's actually you and you're calling. And it's like, yeah, like if you're in trouble, we can't, you know, we don't want you waiting for hours to hear from me. Um, and, and I believe that. And I believe that in, in all my practice and, and, and in all the businesses that we run that involve helping people, uh, immediate response is what's required. Because even if you can't see them right away, you can give people hope, right? You can give people hope by giving them something to hang on to, another, a date, you know, check in with me in a couple of days, you know, five minute phone call. Um, so I'm with you. I think that the barriers to entry um, are actually going to be seen on the flip. We're going to see it on the flip side as the increase in suicide rate and attempt suicide rate goes up. Yeah. You and think? you have to, you have to also look at, you know, what's going on in that two to three months that you're waiting for your appointment with the school counselor, because during that time, you're still having to go to school. Maybe you're working a job. You're probably still confronting whatever is currently causing the majority of those mental health issues at the same time. And even with things like getting extensions on assignments, what most people don't realize is when you're in university, often it's not as simple as just asking your professor for an accommodation. You have to go through an administration and you're yeah. already dealing with a mental health issue and now you're going to people. It's not like your professor who you see every week it's an advisor who you've maybe never met and you now have to plead your case and hope that they will accept your accommodation and then forward it to the professor. And in the meantime, you might be falling behind. And so you can see how it really all piles up. And then those barriers to entry, I wouldn't even call it a barrier. I would call it like a massive wall at that point. You know, according to Stats Canada, yeah, you're right on the money. And according to Stats Canada survey um, uh, from uh, the end of December 2020, uh, young adults aged 18 to 24 were three times more likely than older adults to report symptoms of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder if given an opportunity. So, that, you, you know, the age range that you're talking about, your peers that you see on campus above you and below you in terms of age, um, they're really, uh, in this day and age anyway, we've done a really good job in terms of opening that up with less stigma for people that are, you know, on top of their, on top of their game enough to reach out to, to ask for such help. Um, so the fact that we, we, we may not be able to accommodate them is, is like a, like a third mistake here because it's, you're getting an age where an age age category or a group of, uh, a group of kids in a particular age category that, um, are, are open to help. 
and not having that help available. I mean, University of Toronto put together a 21 from the faculty and the students put together 21 recommendations to improve mental health services. But at the end of the day, if you can't staff it and you can't destigmatize it and you can't be, you know, as you said earlier, and I think you said it really well, you have to, you know, it, they make appointments for times that the students can't attend. So what's the benefit? So what's your take? I mean, you've been reporting this stuff for a long time, obviously through the pandemic as well. Uh, what's your take on, on what you see over the next you know, couple of years? Do you see the, the, the universities stepping up and doing what's required, or is this going to be a real disaster? I think there is mounting pressure on universities to scale it up. Uh, before the pandemic, I was investigating some incidents that had gone on at the University of Toronto regarding one building in particular. Uh, I won't say them on the air just given the nature of the incidents, but you can look right. them up and you can find them. And so investigating those incidents and the public outcry around that, right. I think has shown me that people will start to speak out. And it's only a matter of time until it can't be ignored anymore and something will have to give. Well, they're reporting, people reporting during the pandemic it was impossible to get help. And now people are reporting after the pandemic that they're experiencing extremely long wait lists. Uh, thanks, Sophia. I appreciate it. I'll let you get back to your <laughs> to your day, your evening job. Uh, during the wait time, though, there's no there's like no no check ins. There's no one even you know there's no one checking to see what you've been doing for the last month or two or three and or weeks or whatever it is. And that's really that that is what I was talking to Sophia about it. That's really that that dead time that that in between time where you're waiting and you're expecting a call and you're not sure when you're going to get the call and if they're going to call and how soon you can get some help and when can my first appointment be and so on and so forth. It, it's it's a big deal for a lot of people it's the difference between whether they decide to go to sleep and wake up tomorrow or maybe not so you know i'm just really hoping we can stay on top of it and how cool is it that our own sophia is uh, on the inside of this stuff looking out and is an exceptional journalist as well so uh, we'll get to do more with her and uh, have her share with all of us so it's nice that we can Bring that talent from within. If you do know somebody, by the way, who's having a difficult time, or yourself, if you're having a difficult time, you can always call me, right, anytime, uh, 877-777-5808, or you can uh, send me an email here, recovery at 640toronto.com, um, or reach out to you know other online experts that are uh, providing online distress care, like uh, 833-456-456. 4566 for Kids Helpline uh, or 800-668-6868. Uh, you can reach them as well. Um, the National Network of Distress Lines is that 833-456-4566 number. There's lots of online resources. Don't be afraid to reach out. That's what they're there for. Uh, if you get stuck, you need some help, you want some direction, you want a little guidance, give me a call, give me a text, send me an email, whatever, and I'll be glad to help you. Um, and I mean it. It's like I, I'm actually going to call you back. So you'll you'll know that when it happens. Okay, so when we come back, we got more stuff to do. We're going to uh, talk to a good friend of mine, a brother of mine, uh, about a, a terrible disaster that happened in the city of Toronto uh, this past week when a 27-year-old youth worker was fatally shot in Regent Park. When we come back, we're going to be joined by my good brother and my dear friend, Marcel Wilson. And uh, he's the founder and president of the One by One movement and one of the best youth workers I've ever known, and I've been at this game forever. Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. 
And thank you for joining us. And welcome back. This is Yona Bud. You are on the road to recovery on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us. We know you have other choices. Uh, terrible week for uh, youth workers uh, around the city of Toronto. 27-year-old man uh, was shot. Um, his name was Thane Murray. Uh, killed in the area of Sumac and Oak Street, um, just in the... Uh, well, well known, really well known young man in the Regent Park community. Uh, kids loved him. Everybody loved him. Youth workers loved him. The community workers loved him. Um, everybody just thought he was the greatest guy. Um, wrong place at the wrong time, I think. Uh, don't know. We're going to talk to my dear friend and my brother, um, Marcel Wilson. He is the founder and president of One by One Movement, but he's also an exceptional youth worker and someone who's actually in the streets, uh, in the dirt, so to speak, trying to make a difference. My son, my brother, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. It is a terrible, horrible thing. Yeah, um, and I wanted to I wanted to share with you on on air and sort of see if we can. Um, mourn, mourn his loss in a meaningful way that might make a difference to others. Uh, so I do appreciate you joining us in, in this time of sorrow for you and for all those that knew him. That's that's your old hood, right, Regent Park? That's where you that's where you started. Uh, I grew up in Swansea Mews, but I definitely have a lot of deep ties in uh, in the Regent wow. Park community. So um, words can you can you even is there are there words you can use to even describe how this feels? come up with is is senseless you know and today being the national day of remembrance remembrance for murder victims you know it, it definitely drives it home you know this is the second community uh youth worker that has been killed in the past month so you know this this job is getting even more and more dangerous for people like us and sorry that's my my voice is a little bit hoarse today because uh we had the mother's peace walk uh, against violence uh, along Young Street, and we were screaming and yelling. So hopefully <laughs> things like this uh, bring more attention to these issues, and there are no more tragedies like Mr. Thane Murray. You know, uh, as a as a youth worker, uh, someone who's still in the trenches, um, you know, I, I think back of my years when I was at Street Haven and the Crossroads in the old days, you know, some 40-odd years ago, and uh, working with the Addiction Research Foundation in those days before it became CAMH, and, you know, working up and down the streets of, of the some difficult communities, helping people get to their methadone, helping people get to their medication, doctor's appointments, making sure they were still alive, getting them back to the shelter, whatever. Um, and, you know, you're out in the street at 2, 3 in the morning, and you and a maybe maybe a cop if you're assigned one. If not, it's just a bigger guy or a bigger person that can come with you for a little bit of security. But just some scary situations. I was able to talk my way out of most of them, um, pretty much all of them. Uh, but I wasn't dealing with people that had you know guns and and weapons. I was just dealing with people whose mental health and addiction issues were so bad that they couldn't find their way out of you know the the, the ditch they were in. For you, it has to be. Like every time you get out of your car, brother, and, and drive into, you know, into a, a neighborhood that you know has the potential for drive-bys or, you know, uh, you know random, random shootings around something, um, how do you protect yourself? How do you protect you from the mess out there? Well, it's uh, definitely an occupational hazard. And, you know, I really go into this with the mindset that I – you know, I, you know, I'm a former gang leader myself, and I yep. risk my life every day to, you know, for, for, for greed. So if someone is going to harm me or kill me because I'm trying to do good now and I'm trying to help the city, then so be it. You know, and, and it's crazy how 
you know, all these things are related to gangs and all these kinds of things, man. What we're seeing is disorganized crime, right? This, this, this is more relatable to terrorism when there's no rhyme or reason to it. So, you know, I, I go into these things just hoping that people see my, my, my passion and hopefully they see that I'm trying to help them and their families and that protects me. But if it doesn't, then so be it. You know, you talk about uh, one of the notes I have here is to, to talk to you about the fact that this really isn't gang violence anymore. This is uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, this is urban terrorism. And I guess, I guess I guess one of the ways you can prep yourself going to work, I was thinking, you know, what advice would I give someone like you if they were a young youth worker about how to kind of, you know, keep their head above water and stay alive? And I would say, you know, make sure you're in, you know, you're, you're, you're attached to social media so you see who's dissing who because if you can follow, now you've, you're the one that taught me this. If you can find the social media thread, you can usually figure out where the next uh, round of gang, gang and gun violence might be, correct? Correct, correct. And that's the thing. That's the thing people have to care enough. And it's become a culture. And how do we address this issue? How do we turn it around? You have to deal with the culture. Uh, one of my mentors uh, gave me an, an amazing phrase, which is um, experience repeated becomes habit. Habits repeated become behavior. Behaviors repeated become culture. So we need wow. to address the issue right at the root, which is the culture, the culture of violence. You know, they're telling us what they're doing. They're telling us what they've done. And they're telling us what we're about to do. And all it takes to make this slow down, to stop it, is for people to care. That's all. Same passion that people are putting into things like vaccinations or anti-vaccinations or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Put that same drive and passion into caring about your neighbor and their children. And this will, this will slow down. Did you know Thane Murray? I did not know him personally, but uh, a lot of the, uh, like, as I said, I have a lot of deep ties in Regent Park and a lot of the guys and people that I know from around there, like, spoke very, very highly of him. I had a young man who emailed me the other day who was going through some uh, emotional traumas uh, because, you know, this was the guy who would play basketball with him every day, you know, and he's angry, 16 years old, and now was thinking, you know, like, what can I do to avenge this? And we kind of had to talk him off the ledge. Right? So it's just, it's just terrific, man. Well, fortunately, you were on the other end of the phone to try to talk him off the ledge, you know. But um, I want you to put your, your gang uh, your gangbanger hat on for just a minute. Um, this is really bad for business. What surprises me at this stage, you know, when I was a, a punk growing up, um, you know, the kind of guys, you know, the gangs that I knew about were organized. They were suits and ties. Uh, they made, you know, they worked in, uh, parts of town that, uh, now you go to for the best, uh, pasta and pizza you can. But, you know, and I'm not casting dispersions on any one group. It's just the gangs were different. Uh, bikers were even different in those days. Uh, they didn't take people in that had drug addiction issues or alcohol issues or, or, you know, had issues around, uh, uh, any kind of, uh, you know, craziness like, uh, 
pedophilia or anything like that. They were very careful, both sides, um, the organized criminals and the, and the organized criminals on the back of bikes. And they never shot at families. They never, you've heard me say this before, never shot at families, I'm sure. Uh, they never, you know, the kids weren't involved, you know, kids were, were a no-no, stayed away from schools and, 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 and parks and stuff. You know, they, and, and you couldn't just hit on somebody without a vote, either a, either a vote in the club, if it was a, something that you were, you know, a, a gang where you were patched into at some level or, you know, in, in, in terms of the more uh, rooted uh, organized criminals. I mean, if it didn't come from the top, if it didn't come from, you know, the, the, the person running that part of the, the town, country, city, whatever, it didn't happen. It seems like, like you said, these are un- disorganized, organized crime. Um, that's the scariest part. It has to be for you. Absolutely. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And, you know, those, those groups that you were talking about and mentioned still exist. And believe me, uh, you know, doing the work that I do, I definitely have to keep in touch and keep ties with, you know, people that are walking the line or on the other side of it. And even they, even a lot of them, you know, won't speak out publicly, but are absolutely disgusted and will not co-sign this kind of behavior. This is a new breed that we're dealing with. And I, and again, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough disorganized criminals disorganized crime opposed to organized crime and we are looking at urban terrorism do you think that you think we should be policing it that way that's that's exactly what i'm saying you know that why did they create the rico act right it was specific to uh, an ideology the ideology behind organized crime is capital gains so once you figure that out you figure out a solution for it now People being puzzled by this behavior, we're helping to identify that this is relatable to terrorism. You could talk to any terrorist expert. Maybe we should bring yep. one on one day, you know, yep. and talk about the parallels. Because that's what so, we're seeing, and that's how this should be policed. So listen, I have a surprise for you if you're up for it, and you can get yourself a hot drink. We're going to go to break here in a minute and uh, do news and all that stuff, and then we'll be back uh, at 10.05. Can you stick around and join me? Because we're going to have our other brother, uh, Louis, coming on to talk about uh, today's uh, uh, walk. And I don't think he knows you're coming and you didn't know he was coming. So see if we can get the band back together a little bit and uh, and chat. You cool to do that? Absolutely. Okay, so you go take a break and gargle some salt water, like my mother would say, warm water and salt, clear your throat, and we'll have you, we'll have you back here in a minute. So stay tuned. We've got a lot to do. Um, uh, it's people like, just so you know, it's people like Marcel Wilson and my guest coming up, Louis March. These are guys that are in the trenches saving lives every day, and you just don't know about it. I know about it, but I'm telling you about it. These are the heroes. These are the people you need to pay attention to and do what you can to support their work. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And thank you so much. It's 10.05. You're on the Road to Recovery with Yona Bud and Sophia and Corey and Anne-Marie in the studio tonight. I've got a couple of guests just on hold here. We're going to be with them in just a second. Uh, Mother's Peace Walk today in Toronto. Uh, it's recognizing the National Day of Remembrance for Victims of Homicide. Uh, big walk starting at Young and Bluer and ending up at Nathan Phillips Square. Um, the Walk for Peace is organized by several community organizations that are working to engage mothers and families in desperate need of multiple uh, 
uh, supports to deal with their never-ending grief and trauma. Uh, mothers, it's it's the um, it's the Mother's Peace Walk. So it's a peace walk from uh, uh, cities across the, the country, across the province, I understand. Uh, joining me right now is my dear friend and uh, brother, Louis March, from Zero Gun Violence Movement. And we've asked uh, my other brother and dear friend, um, Marcel Wilson, to hang on. He's with uh, One by One. So I got you both on. So nice to have the three of us together. Um, I wish it was over a, a meal, but um, I guess we can't. We'll get to that one day, yeah? Thanks for having us again, Iona. A pleasure, a pleasure. So, Louis, let's start off with you. Um, you know, you, you sound like you weren't screaming as much as Marcel because your, <laughs> your voice sounds pretty clear. Um, so, big event. Um, how many people you think turned out for this thing? I'm, I'm thinking somewhere between uh, 250 and 300. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it was really powerful to have the mothers out. Uh, when you speak with the mothers who are traumatized from the tragic loss of children, it's difficult to gauge how they will react and respond to crowds, to talk about their experiences, their their aches and pains, their traumas. But it turned out like the mothers were lining up to speak. And for, I think, the first time in the city of Toronto, we That's had amazing. mothers in mass united to speak about what they were going through and demanding an end to gun violence and all the, you know, the, the damage it causes. Absolutely. So, um, Marcel, you were there. Um, were people moved? I mean, first of all, did you guys get any, did, did this organization, were you able to put together a, a media scrum or did you get some, is this going to be covered by uh, my, my, my guys at, at global and uh, other, other networks? Is you going to get some kind of coverage on this or was it kind of, Something that you kind of kept on the down lower. Yeah. How, how who's who's going to know about this other than us? There, there, there was definitely some media that showed up. Um, we had one of our people from One by One, uh, Century Sam, uh, talk to one of the media people that showed up. So there was a little bit of coverage, but it definitely that's not what we we're about today. We really wanted to connect with the people, the people that were walking down the street, the people that see this kind of thing every day on television, but tend to ignore it. We want it to be in their face. We wanted to amplify the mother's voices. And I think we accomplished that today. Marcel, did you get anyone at city hall listening? Um, you know, th that question is, 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 is the question we ask all the time. And my truthful answer is, I don't know. So Louie, you do a lot of backbench work with uh, politicians and stuff. Do you think anybody was paying attention today? I don't think they were paying attention. You know, uh, we tried to just create a space for the mothers to speak their realities. There were a couple of politicians that did show up. Uh, I think on the provincial level, uh, we had crisis response from the city of Toronto there, supporting and helping with the logistics. But politicians, no. I... I I can't recall seeing any of them specifically. So I have an idea. <clears throat> you guys can bounce it around and we can talk about doing it uh, if you're interested. Uh, I would have no problem providing uh, a couple of segments on this show, which reach, reaches tens of thousands of people and also gives you an opportunity to have something recorded you could send to politicians. If you want to, if we can put together two or three mothers and maybe a couple of young people that were affected, um, um, I, I'd be pleased to dedicate a couple of segments to doing that if you think that would be beneficial. Because what I'm getting from your conversation with me here is that it was really more 
cathartic for the the mothers. It was really something for the families to to get have a platform. So if today's march gave them that platform, perhaps being on this show might uh, give them a, a, a maybe a, a slightly uh, larger platform in terms of reach. Um, is that something you think that might make sense? Of course, uh, the audience, your audience, is critical to us because I don't think people understand the magnitude of uh, the trauma, the grief, the ripple effect, the continuation of not addressing these issues, right? Right. Uh, But the solutions are close at hand. We have just never seen this as a priority from a political perspective. And I think that having your platform will give us an opportunity to let people know. Today we also had some young men that had been impacted by gun violence some young women speaking about how it also impacted them right. and their relationships and their lives. People don't realize that gun violence does not happen in a vacuum by itself. It has an everlasting impact on so many other people. And that's why the call and uh, Marcel was on, on the mic today, you know, chanting as we walked down Young Street, you know, enough is enough. We've had enough of this violence. Stop the violence. Mothers are crying. Children are dying. There's a bigger picture than just what we see in the media. You know, Mar- Marcel. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to take away from one crisis for another. But you know, we're, we we as a country are are devastated. Certainly, I am I'm devastated in terms of what we see uh, from the uh, residential homes where there's hundreds, if not thousands, of Aboriginal uh, children uh, missing and and uh, who knows uh, in graves maybe not um, and as a country we're we're up in arms you know we feel horrible for the families we feel horrible for the for the for the mums that didn't have the babies come home and we you know we, we just were all devastated by this at least it appears that way when you talk to people you know on a general basis right. what scares me or what makes me shake my head is in real time in a mindful moment in today. We have mothers affected by not missing children in the same way, but children who are helpless to what's going on around them and mothers who are helpless to protect them. And we're not, you know, to, to your point, we're not, we're not as up in arms. We're not as devastated as we are when we talk about past experiences that are just horrible, or when we're talking about stories, you know, those buildings that fell in Florida, um, you know, the building that fell in Florida for, for weeks, we were, you know, people were talking on, on on the air and on radio on TV about you know how horrible it is for the families of these missing people. They don't know where they are, or what happening. They have to. People have to understand. My listeners need to understand. You are the best people in the world. You, I love you. You're the greatest audience ever. But you need to understand. There are mothers right now, right today, right here, right now, that are mourning the loss of one of their children. There are mothers right here, right now, that are mourning the loss of of a family member. There are friends like my dear friend uh, Marcel and, and and my brother Louis, like who who are you know who whose loss of Shane, uh, the the youth worker, affects them. It, it's affecting us in real time, my dear friends. Absolutely. And that's why, and and that's why I'm so fortunate to have these guys um, on my team, and fortunate that they let me share with them because I I can't get this message out loud enough and strong enough. If walking down the street is one thing, but we as listeners, you as an audience, we're sitting back going, oh, well, you know, it's not really affecting me. Not true. It's affecting you or it's affecting you in some way that you don't know yet. 
This is a this is a this is a pandemic. This is a virus that we've been talking about for years. That's intermingled with our social mishaps, with the fact that we're not doing things properly. Gentlemen, do do you? Um, I know Marcel. It's hard for you because we've talked about this before. You're going to get up and fight another fight tomorrow, right? Every day, every day, it'll never stop. And I have a message, you know, for your listeners. And one of the things we have to stop doing is the selective outrage. You know, like you said, if it, it doesn't affect me, it doesn't affect me. Well, I pray that one day it doesn't and that you end up at one of our marches and one of our walks. And hopefully, hopefully we, we can end these marches and these walks because the work has been done and our children are safer. But until then, this is a problem that affects us all. We have, you know, shootings in malls, broad daylight, uh, youth and community workers getting hit children being hit, old women. This is not just gang beef between gangs. That doesn't exist anymore. You are in danger. Help us do something about it. Louis, um, I don't even know where to begin. Louis, the, the, uh, the political fight, the, 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 uh, the election we just went through, I know, you're, you, you, know you, you, you follow a lot of the platforms of different politicians, especially those that affect the work that you do are, are doing. I, I didn't hear anything, see anything, or read anything that made me feel like any of the uh, parties had a handle on what we're doing with uh, this gun violence and youth violence issue. Um, did I miss something, or is it just not there? No, it's just not there. They don't see it as a priority. Wow. Toronto is an incredible city. We're well-resourced. When we put our mind to something, we have the capacity to resolve these type of issues. At the political level, they have not done. They, they, they skate around it. You know, Marcel speaks about selective outrage. Then when it comes to polit- politicians, it's selective priorities. And um, Marcel was articulate you know, in Satan that it affects us all. We're all in danger if we don't address this, and the politicians have not received the message yet. Even though at City Hall, there's attempts now to change the culture and change uh, the dynamics and put more focus on it. But the voices that were heard today, they should have been listening to that because these are voices that are seldom heard. These were the actual mothers themselves. And there were so much tears shed today just listening to the stories because this was the first time people were being exposed to the reality of what happens when you have to bury your son and you have to wake up the next morning and listen to somebody say, you know, you'll get over it. Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm, uh, all I can say is we're, I'm thankful. We're thankful as a community that you guys are out there doing what you do. We'll have you back on again. Uh, as always stay safe out there. You know, I got you, I got your back where I can. I love you both and, uh, stay strong and stay safe. So, you know, guys, you as an audience, you got to be listening and, and, and thinking to yourself, like, this has got to sooner or later, it's got to make sense to somebody. And unfortunately, it might be what, Mar- what what Marcel said. Maybe somebody in government has to be affected in some serious way. And I don't wish it on anybody. Believe me, I don't wish it on anybody. 
but I'll bet you if somebody in, 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 in Doug Ford's family or John Tory's family or, or any one of the politicians in their families, any one of them was, you know, God forbid, you know, at a mall where there was a shooting and somehow was affected, uh, either traumatized, which would be, you know, the, the least of all, of all uh, pains, um, somehow come out of that. I don't know. Maybe then things will shift. I hope not. I hope if we just keep doing this, you guys will pay attention and talk to your politicians and the people that matter and see if we can make it. A difference in some way. Um, but I thank them both for their job and we wish them well and, and good health and uh, safety in the work that they do. When we come back, um, God, I don't even know where you go from there. What's just so sad. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Um, we appreciate you uh, choosing your uh, our station to spend your time with us tonight. And uh, yeah, man, I wish I could meet all of all of you. So text me, send me messages. Uh, you can text me at 647-488-0086 or call me here, 416-870-6400. The question is, how has your life changed in the last 18 months? Six ways. We have an article here about six ways that the society's changed and what it means. We have Jerry standing by um, wanting to talk to us about uh, um, having trust issues uh, during the pandemic. Jerry, this is Yona. Thanks for calling. Good evening. Okay. Talk to me. Hello, sir. Uh, Let me try to put this as intelligently as I possibly can. Um, I just. It's okay. We don't know who you are. Okay. (laughs) That's good. I I just. uh, It's hard to trust anything anyone says from. uh, Sorry, I don't want to put labels, but uh, mainstream media, government. friends, acquaintances, uh, trust the science, but the science is changing all the time, uh, promises the government makes, but they can't follow through. Just, just trust in society is just falling apart for me. How about uh, trusting people that you do know, family members, neighbors, buddies? Um, I really second-guess it, too. I, I just... You, tr- you trust. You trust. You trust. You trust. It's paranoia. It's really paranoia. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well. Okay. But let's. You know. <clears throat> let's not <clears throat> give you some kind of label that you're going to walk away thinking that there's something seriously wrong with you. Like a very difficult time. Um, not. Not hard to. Uh, you know. Look at where you're coming from because a lot of mix, mixed messages. A lot of different. Uh, you know. Me, you know. Different kinds of uh, positions being taken by all kinds of different people. Politicians in general, I have a hard time trusting. So I get what you're saying. Um, you having problem trusting yourself at all, Jerry? Like, are you feeling that, you know, you're having a, a problem trusting your own gut instincts and such, or is it just strangers or, or, or others? I shouldn't say strangers. No, I trust myself to make the pro- Good. Uh, Good. best possible uh, rational conclusions to whatever I listen to. I, I try to always look at both sides of the situation and I, I, I dissect it and look at everybody's view. I don't, I don't uh, just have one liberal or conservative or whoever is speaking i don't just automatically say oh they're right and they're wrong i'm I'm not i don't take those positions um but you know i just everything that's going on in in media and government i'm just it doesn't make a lot of stuff doesn't make sense. And then, okay. So, so let, let's look at this together for a little bit and then we'll take another caller, but let's look at this together for a second. <clears throat> it doesn't make sense. If it doesn't make sense and you trust your own decision-making processes, then you're good, 
right? So if it doesn't make sense, go with your gut. If you're not sure what you believe and you can't, and you can't do your own research to verify it, then go with what your gut tells you. You know, one, you know, if your friend is sharing one thing with you and your neighbor's sharing another and your cousin Billy's sharing another on news, they're sharing another and the experts are sharing another, you know, it's everyone sharing third party, second line, fourth line, fifth line information, right? So it's up to you to decipher and to filter what works for you and what doesn't work for you, what sounds like BS and what doesn't sound like BS. The issue for you, if you're, if paranoia will come from, from you not trusting your own decision processes and your own concerns and, and anxieties and fears of the future. It's a very uncertain, it's a very uncertain time. So what you're feeling is somewhat normal, but you got to at least trust your own gut. And, um, and that's what I suggest you do is trust your gut, go with what feels right. Uh, just because someone says it, it isn't so. And, uh, you got to do what fits for you. And if it doesn't fit for you, walk away. You get to make choices and you get to put boundaries up around your choices. Thank you so much for calling Jerry. You're, you're a great listener and I appreciate your time. Uh, we have Melanie on the phone as well. Good evening, Melanie. How can I help you? Good evening. I'm so happy that I found you. And if I wasn't... <laughs> I'm happy I found you, too. Oh, thank you. But if I wasn't washing dishes this late at night, I don't think I would have heard you. But you asked... <laughs> oh, that's great. ...how I've changed. I've ended up being a better person. I even have more empathy. I always had empathy for the world and for the suffering. And it's made me so much closer to the world, to other people. Even the previous caller that you called, I felt his sadness. And I, I feel so much more in touch with humanity. I feel like we're all in a small room now with one enemy, and that's the COVID. And I just bless the Lord that we have these brilliant scientists, doctors from around the world who are helping us. And I feel, I don't know, it's a, it's a love that I feel so much more for, for humanity and for this suffering. I look at things so much more differently. I don't take anything for granted, even the orange for, that comes to me from South Africa. But my greatest help was reading the Psalms, uh, reading the books of wisdom from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and seeing the suffering of 5,000 years. There's nothing that we're going through now that's worse than what happened in the past. People need to remember that. And even if people let you down, always look to our God, to our Creator, who knows what's going on. He's the great, great, great administrator. So please, people out there, just be kinder to others, and you're going to start feeling better yourself. Thank you so much for the call, Melanie. You're, you're a wonderful guest and a wonderful listener, and I appreciate uh, you sharing uh, your words of uh, spiritual uh, strength and uh, for some that's going to connect for some it may not but uh, it's lovely listening to the strength in your voice and I think that's really what I get from this call is you just sound like a woman who's loves loves to loves to help and loves to love and uh, we need more folks like you out there so thank you for calling when we come back from break we're going to continue uh, on uh, this segment a little bit and talk about how the world has actually changed for us uh, over the pandemic welcome back to road to recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, 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 thanks for joining me. Welcome back. It's 1030. Can you believe it? Holy smokes. If you didn't hear this before, hear it now. Don't you know where your children are, your loved ones, your adults in your life, your seniors, your dogs, pets, whatever? If you don't know where they are, you should probably track them down and figure out where they're, where they're if they are where they're supposed to be. If not, you know, you can reach out to us. We'll give you a hand, uh, 416-870-6400. We'll guide you in the right direction. But I would call 911 if you really think that they're in 
some kind of bad way. Um, you know, we uh, just to follow up on where we were with our, our callers earlier, please feel free to give me a call and let us know. We'll, we'll jump in and uh, give you a chance to speak. want to know how the pandemic has changed you uh, over the last 18 months or so, um, you know, for the better, for the worse. I mean, either way, it doesn't matter. We just want to know how, you're, how, how it's changed you. We're not here to judge. We're just here to share. That's what we do on this show. You know, I'll tell you what, the pandemic has definitely changed the trajectory of America's um, overdose and suicide crisis. Uh, you know, we, we seem to be talking about suicide rates and mental health rates and um, overdose rates. And, you know, we're, 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 we're just, man, we're talking about a lot of sick people that are going to die if we don't do a better job. I don't know how I can say it any any clearer than that. I know it sounds like, like, I'm, a, uh, like, a, like I'm a Dougie Downer, but, you know, it is what it is, right? And, you know, if we don't get a handle on this stuff, if we don't put in place the things we need to put in place, um, you know, people like me and, and, and people, other therapists that do what I do and facilities that provide what we provide and so on, um, you know, these are, these are going to be times that we're just not going to be able to manage. You know, I've, I've seen an increase in my own practice that's just through the roof, uh, not at all what I expected. I've had to take on extra help and, and hire some folks to, to ha- handle the flow, do what we need to do. So, um, But I do want to help you. So 877-777-5808. You can get me anytime, and I'm glad to chat with you and uh, uh, see if I can give you some direction or just listen maybe. Maybe that's all you need is just someone to listen. But I'll tell you, drug overdose deaths have jumped 30% since last year to 92,500 people, according to the newly released federal data in the United States. These are American statistics. Uh, it's part of a, an organization that I belong to, um, and uh, I get uh, monthly updates on different things, so I'm able to share these with you here uh, when the time is appropriate. Suicide rates have actually dropped, though, from uh, 47,500 in 2019 to 44,800 in 2020. Did a show, uh, I do something on um, Thursday nights on um the show with Alex, and uh, we do something like a check-in, a weekly check-in. And, um, you know, we, we talked about this thing, about the fact that suicide rates have been dropping, um, you know, but, you know, maybe they're underreported. Maybe people are now finding access to some help that everyone's talking about it. Or, you know, we're taking these overdose uh, rates, these overdose deaths, and calling them drug overdoses when perhaps in some cases, and you know, not hard to believe that, that in some cases uh, they're in fact um, um, overdoses for the purpose of not waking up, you know, t- taking one's life when things are, are really bad. Those two trends have tracked closely. Those two numbers have tracked closely when we look at suicide rates and uh, drug-related deaths. Um, the situation was so bad before COVID, uh, during the pandemic, um, it's hard for us to say with any real certainty, but any real educated guess would say that the leap in drug overdose deaths, um, surprising everybody, by the way, uh, but it, you know, it's, it's based on, um, I think, a few things. We, we've seen a 30% increase in deaths, according to the experts. This is completely different. Um, never seen a 30% jump like that before. Uh, they say it's a disruptional trend. Um, overdose deaths saw a comparatively small uh, percentage increase. But <clears throat> what they're really talking about is, you know, at the end of all of this, the people that I know that have had overdose issues and, and have been fortunate enough to, to come back to life and, uh, and not uh, have lost their life to a drug overdose, um, many of those were just people not using drugs smartly. It was not a function of wanting to take their lives. Many of them said to me, listen, man, I, I really don't want to kill myself. I was just, you know, doing a couple of points of heroin, and I guess, you know, it had more fentanyl than heroin. So I go back to what I said a million times. I'm going to say it again, maybe not a million, but a whole bunch. My wife says I, 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 I um, 
what's I, what's the word I use? I exaggerate a lot, but a, a lot of times I've said to to you and to others that have listened to to me on previous shows and other opportunities that we're in a situation here where uh, unless we can come up with some kind of handheld testing uh, similar to, you know, something you can hand out like they did in the days of the AIDS epidemic when we were handing out condoms to anybody and everybody, uh, handing out little drug testing kits, uh, one-time use drug testing kits, so you can test whatever you get to see how much of what's in there that shouldn't be there. So you know, and not necessarily to stop you from using it, but certainly to use it in a, in a safer way. So I know people that use fentanyl and, and use heroin and, and there's really no heroin out there anyway, by the way, it uh, hasn't been for a while. Um, so it's fentanyl with whatever else mixed in. If they actually knew the percentage of fentanyl, which, which was going to be in the syringe after the fact, they would use it differently. And without getting into how people use it's, you know, measurement on the syringe, whether it's one point, 10 points, five points, anything in between. So if you're used to using one or two points, of heroin or three or four points of heroin, that means you can probably use a half a point of fentanyl um, without killing yourself. But there, there needs to be a measure and you need to know what's going on. And the drug over the drug, you know, issue overseas and the overdoses and the stuff that's coming from other places in the world, you know, carfentanil. Now there's a couple of other new new uh, synthetic drugs that are even more dangerous. So it, it's really a question of a of a tainted drug supply which is really at the bottom of a lot of these deaths, um, more so than perhaps the fact that users um, just don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing because they don't know what they're actually doing. They don't know what's actually in the syringe or in the pipe or in the pill. You know, I know a lot of, I have a recent situation with a, with a, with a family with working with their teenage son uh, who ended up in hospital with a fentanyl overdose. He thought he was getting oxys. He bought oxys off the street. They looked like oxys. His mother showed me a couple of the pills. They had the stampings of an oxy. They looked like the real thing. Um, and it was like 75, 80% of it was fentanyl. The other, you know, eight or, eight or 10, 15% was other garbage. Um, there wasn't, it wasn't a touch of, of, uh, of, um, oxy in there at all. But, you know, it, it, the problem is that when you, when you treat drug issues and drug loss or, or uh, drug use as a crime, you have no way to kind of protect people by, you know, having an organized approach to it, right? Um, the use of fentanyl has grown, you know, exponentially. We just can't keep track of it, right? Um, fentanyl is all over the country, the experts say. You can say that they have occurred alongside of each other, that the, that the, loss, of li- the loss of lives through opioid deaths and the increase in fentanyl exposure, uh, you put them together, there's pretty much a straight line. Um, so it's not hard to understand how we got to where we are. What's hard to understand is how we're going to get to a better place from here. We need to really smarten up around drug use, and we really need to spend time and attention figuring out how we can help people who are actually in need because of their unsettled mental health and other reasons why they choose to self-medicate. They're not people that are just dregs of the earth and just rather get high because they don't want to fit into society. These are sick people that self-medicate because they don't have another solution. We need to work on other solutions, right? And the complicated story behind the drop in suicide rates is, you know, if you put them kind of neck and neck, it's, you know, isolation was driving the drug use up um, and therefore overdose deaths up. So how do you explain the drop in suicides? Well, some of the experts uh, say that there's a rise in a time of great social anxiety. So unproven theories that the economic relief passed by Congress, again, this is a U.S. story, may have helped alleviate suicidal ideation during the pandemic. So hanging on to something positive, the government's going to give me money, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to survive, and so on, uh, gives someone some chance or some thoughts of, 
of hope and perhaps you know that keeps them from killing themselves that day. Um, countries that have instituted uh, these kind of generous social safety nets, uh, they've seen a decline in suicide rates over a while, um, some of them over decades, because some of these countries that have, you know, instituted some general social, social, generous social safety nets, excuse me, we're seeing a decrease in uh, overdose deaths uh, prior to the pandemic. So, um, this stuff has been going on. We've been trying to get a handle on this forever. You know, I, I go back to my years of, of tainted drugs, you know, many, many decades ago, uh, where, you know, everything was tainted with uh, PCP and, and other kinds of, of horrible detergents and, you know, all kinds of rat poison was put in, in general street drugs and uh, people were dying, right? But either way, COVID's, COVID's effect on American suicide rate and overdose rates, um, are they're not fully apparent. We don't know. We're not going to know for a bunch of years yet how all this is going to play out. But I'm, I'm telling you right here, right now, and pay attention to what, my, what I'm telling you. We're going to look at a decade of decline in people's mental health. We're going to look at a decade, a decade of crazy numbers for suicide rates, a decade of people overdosing in, uh, for, you know, in forms of, ment- of, of self-medicating. Uh, we haven't begun to see really the tip of the iceberg yet. Uh, this is going to play itself out, unfortunately. So I hope that we're ready. I hope that we're doing all the things we need to do uh, ahead of this mental health and uh, overdose and drug use pandemic uh, or epidemic or whatever, tsunami or whatever big name you want to give it so it's big enough that you pay attention. Uh, but we're, uh, we're hoping to see some changes. And if we're, you know, we're going we're gonna to look at studies as they come up and uh, bring them to people's attentions. But at the end of the day, we just need to be more understanding as, as a society and we need not to victimize people who are not well. Um, who end up in a terrible spot having to choose between, you know, feeding their addiction, which is feeding their desire to stay alive that one more day by self-medicating or, you know, or whether they feed themselves real food. And uh, I don't know. we got to get a handle on this. It's really, uh, it's really a problem. And it's not going away anytime soon. This is Jonah about 640 Toronto. Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back for our last segment of the show. We're going to run out of time here, so I just want to make sure you remember that you need to hug the ones you're with, love the people that are close to you, and treat each other well. Treat someone as you want to be treated and all that kind of good stuff because you are the greatest people out there. You're a wonderful audience, and I love you all, but we need to do a better job of treating each other well, and uh, that's going to help us get through the ugly side. So if I don't get a chance to say this when we sign off, just, uh, you know, give somebody a hug for me. Just say it's from Yona. Anyway, we have a, a wonderful young man, is police constable Sean Shapiro, who's joining us tonight from uh, Toronto Police Services, Traffic Services. Uh, constable Shapiro, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. So is it Shapiro or Shapiro? It is Shapiro. Well, my kind of guy, my mother would say. I like it already. <laughs> so um, happy new year to you. Um, you as well. What I'd li- Thank you. So um, can I call you Sean or you want me to call you Constable Shapiro? Oh, Sean is absolutely perfect. Okay, perfect. Call me Yona. Sean, like, uh, saw some news maybe a month, month and a half ago. I'm sure you saw it too. Uh, guys spinning around the Young and Dundas area, spinning out tires, creating smoke, you know, all with these beefed up little, uh, 
little, uh, you know, little sewing machines with an engine. Um, and it just stuff's out of control, right? Um, and then, you know, we were talking about stunt driving. And then the other day, not so long ago, actually a month and a half ago, my wife and I were on our way to Montreal and I just got this new, uh, this new luxury SUV, which, you know, drives like I'm sitting in my living room. Um, and sure enough, I, I did get pulled over and, uh, wonderful, uh, police officer with the OPP pulled me over and, uh, I wasn't far away from the, from what the stunt driving numbers were. And obviously he realized I'm an old guy in a Lincoln. So likely, uh, he didn't really, he realized I wasn't stunt driving, but, and I said to him, I don't even think the car would go that fast, but, um, so, but it's not people like me, right? This is designed for who? Give me an idea what this is all about and uh, what we need to do to make things better. Listen, stunt driving is a problem, and it's not just speed. It's all sorts of other behaviors that constitute the charge of stunt driving, and it's putting people at risk. It's it's not just the person who's driving the car who says, you know, I, I'm in control of my own destiny. Destiny, I can do what I want. It doesn't affect anybody else, but it does. And uh, we're seeing it with these things like Takeover Toronto or, or Takeover uh, TO, with, where people are consuming uh, locations, uh, blocking roads so police can't get involved and in, in doing stunts on the road. But it is also the uh, excessive speed. And on uh, highways or roads that have a speed limit over 80 kilometers an hour, uh, that's exceeding the speed limit by 50 kilometers or more. And on uh, roads that have a speed limit under 80 kilometers, so a 60, uh, all you have to do is 40 over to constitute stunt driving. And now we've increased, or at least the uh, MTOs and the government has increased the penalties for those uh, offenses. Yeah, so tell me about that. So, you know, it's not, you know, a lot of guys say, uh, I know, if, you know, a few uh, careless idiots that I've met in my past that drive, you know, cars that are probably more expensive than the, the, the home I live in. Um, and, you know, it's like, you know, they'll pay the fine, they'll call a lawyer. Uh, it's not that simple now, right? Um, like, are these guys going to jail? Or give me an idea what happens if someone's pulled over and gets charged or it's alleged that they're charged with stunt driving. So if you are charged with stunt driving, uh, you used to get a seven-day impound and a seven-day suspension on your license. Uh, then you deal with the court proceedings and you could potentially uh, see fines up to $10,000 and up to six months in jail. Um, but you know, courts are a whole separate entity and people play games and hire lawyers and things happen. The, the government has determined that uh, we can't wait for that. So uh, essentially they increase the roadside penalties. So now you lose your car for 14 days instead of seven and your license for 30 days. And they're hoping that that may impact that behavior uh, and prevent people from doing these things that put lives at risk. So you can potentially lose your, your license for, for what minute? Did you say 14 days or 30 days? 30 days for your license suspension, but 14 days your vehicle for is days. impounded and you're responsible for all fees for towing and storage. Yeah, I was close to, uh, where was I? Close to Brockville when this guy pulled me over and he was, he was a real nice guy. Uh, but he pulled me over and, uh, I was close to Brockville and he says, you know, a few more, a few more over and, uh, your car would be impounded in Brockville and, uh, your wife would be, uh, you'd be, and he said, is it potential that they actually can charge you and take you to jail or at least to the station and keep you for a period of time? Not for stunt driving. If the driving behavior was so egregious that that it was putting people at risk immediately, uh, that that it was intentional, dangerous driving, that is a criminal charge. You could be arrested for that. But stunt driving for for simply uh, excessively speeding or doing burnouts uh, or stunts, uh, racing, things like that, uh, you wouldn't necessarily go to jail. Uh, not right there. You could, however, as a result of uh, you know the courts determining that that's what the penalty would be, you could go to jail. Okay, so work with me here for a minute. You you're sound like a great guy, and, a, you know, I, I hope to have you. By the way, are you able to come on whenever we need a, a cop, or you need permission to do Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Oh, well, we, so we, you, we clear it. You're, on, you're going to be happens. on Corey's hot list. Be careful what you ask for. You're going to be on Corey's hot list. But the <laughs> That's pay is good. good. You get, you get, the pay is good. 
Um, <laughs> so what I don't understand is this. Someone's driving, burning out, running circles. A whole bunch of young people are, 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 are sitting around them in other cars or outside of their cars. How is that not putting somebody at risk? Well, it absolutely is. And what was originally happening is, uh, you know, it was happening on streets. It was easy to deal with. Stunt driving, it's clear cut. A lot of time it was also happening on private property. It was damaging property. It was creating issues for uh, property owners. Uh, and this is actually a way of having a lesser uh, penalty than, than uh, dealing it with by way of criminality. Uh, because it, while, while it could be seen both ways. Uh, this is probably an easier or better way of dealing with it. Uh, and, and the hope is, is to deter people from the behavior and uh, dissuade them from doing it, right? It, that's the entire goal is to keep people safe. You, you think these kind of penalties are actually going to make a difference? I mean, do you think, I mean, you, well, it remains you, to be can seen. Can I ask you how long you've been at this? Uh, I've been, a, I've been with the Toronto police for 20 years. I've been a police officer for nine. I used to work in the court system, but uh, it's it's seeing these penalties. Listen, we've seen a tremendous increase recently uh, in relation to the pandemic and the, the, I suppose, opportunity created by fewer cars on the road. Uh, right. But I really do hope that this is effective because uh, it's it's the, the risks are, are tremendous. You know, one lost life is uh, is huge, and uh, we want to make sure that doesn't happen. Do you um, do you know if there's a correlation between um, um, substance use, um, you know, impaired at some level, uh, drugs, alcohol, or otherwise, uh, any correlation between those that get pulled over for stunt driving, speeding excessively and acting like an idiot. I'm sure acting like an idiot isn't the legal express legal term, but that's what, no, but it's very effective. Like it's a, it, yeah, th- it's, it's a pretty thank good you. description. Uh, yeah, as the, they say on the, say on the show, Goldberg's <laughs> acting like morons. Um, is there a correlation there? Well, I'll give you an example. You know, it, it's not just fancy cars that do this as well. Uh, we had someone in a, in a four-door Lexus. I think the speed was 190, and they were doing that on the Don Valley Parkway uh, at 3 in the morning, and they were over the legal limit, so they were impaired. So does impairment uh, allow you to do some pretty silly things, uh, dangerous things? Absolutely. Is there a direct correlation? There's many sober people who choose to do this for whatever reason. Yeah, so tell me about that. So tell me about how, um, you know, some 35-year-old accountant who now has enough money that he can afford to buy a Corvette or at least lease it or finance it or whatever, um, he, you know, he then gets himself onto, let's say, the DVP. That's one that people like or the high or Highway 400 at, you know, 2 in the morning um, and decides that he wants to be Mario Andretti and drive like a moron. Um there's a lot of forethought. I mean, you're not just out for a Sunday drive or a Saturday night drive and decide, hmm, I think I'm going to drive, you know, 50, 60, 80 over the limit, um, whatever the number is. It, you know, is there a correlation between, you know, people that are just buying more expensive cars? It's almost like young kids with toy- with guns. They don't know how to use them, which is why they're not using them properly. The same thing when people that are driving, um, you know, expensive high-speed vehicles. And by the way, even a Lexus four-door can, you know, can put out some pretty decent, uh, decent uh, horsepower. But maybe maybe some more education, like like you're a copper, you've been at it long enough, you've been in courts long enough, I'm sure to hear the horrible stories and the losses of life and so on. Certainly. How do you th- how do you think this is going to fare out? You think that that, well, the, that these re- that these charges and these penalties are going to be enough? I'll tell you, if you get convicted, even if you just have the suspension and you don't get convicted, the effects of your in your insurance are going to be huge. So I think at some point it's going to cost you a lot of money to play the game. And right. if you continue to do it, you may lose your license for life. That's that's uh, you know escalating penalties are a thing. 
you know, but in terms of what motivates someone to break the law, what's not, what motivates they plan to do this? Is it, is it, is it an event that they sit weeks in preparation? Probably not. It's mostly bravado, I think, and, and not a lot of thinking uh, that gets someone saying, you know, there's not a lot of cars here. Let's see what my car can do. And it's just not smart. We, we, I have a sergeant, a friend of mine uh, at traffic services, and he races. He's got a Mustang. It's all souped up and he takes it to the track and he, he does this in a controlled environment where there's safety personnel on hand. It's a ton of money to do it, but he does it properly. He likes going fast and he does it in a safe place. That's where people like should that. be doing that, I this. I like that. That makes sense to me. You know, it, that, it makes that, all that, this like sense. taking a gun to a gun range. If you want to shoot, get some targets or shoot some skeet or something like there's a, a time and a place for everything, right? Sure. Or I like to promote uh, go-karting for people who don't want to invest in uh, learning how to do it properly <laughs> on the track. Take it somewhere locally. Take it small. It feels fast. You get it out of your system and you don't have the, the risks involved. And, and, and the risks are so high. Uh, we only got a minute left. And uh, first of all, you're an amazing guest. Thank you for joining us um, and taking the time to actually get on with Zoom and give us a better quality audio, which is really nice, too. But one real last question for you. And this is really a guess. It's not really something you can uh, maybe base it on professional uh, opinion. But what about all these video games, Need to Speed and all these different racing games that, you know, we, we pick up when we're, you know, 15, 17, 18. And at 25, they're still cool. And at 30 now, we want to take Need to Speed and actually take it onto the 400. Am I making that up or does that sort of make some sense? I'll tell you, some of these people are really great drivers who play video games. It's a great simulator, but is it a, an excuse or a motivation to do it? I don't think so. I will say this. I think people think they're better than they are. They're all part of the I'm a great driver club until they find out they're really not that hot. And uh, we talk about this on my TikTok channel, our traffic services TikTok channel uh, with young people. And they constantly say, well, I've got Bembo brakes on my car. My car can stop on a dime. It's got technology <laughs> that's better than everything else I've ever had. And it's perfect. And you know what? That's great, but there's still physics and you still get hurt and things go when the, the way you don't expect them to. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's a, a game, a video game problem, but I do think there's some decision-making problems. Constable Sean Shapiro, a great guest, a real good guy. Nice to meet you. Nice to have you. We'll have you back again. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We just never have enough time. We might have to go to three hours because two hours isn't cutting it. For me, anyway. But I'm glad you joined us tonight on behalf of Corey and Sophia and Anne-Marie. Uh, thanks for joining us. Make it a great week. Uh, be the best people you can be. We love you. We'll see you next week. Uh, same time, same station. Yonabud, 640 Toronto.